Hey there, y'all. Today we have a really great show for you. The cast of High School Musical, The Musical, The Series is here. They're right here with me, and you'll hear our interview coming up soon. So you stick right there, and we will see you on the timeline. Woo! Good morning, Twitter. I'm Alex Berg. He's Zach Stafford, and you are watching AM to DM. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. You notice uh, something there, Twitter? Our opening's new. I loved it. New I love the, the, the orange juice pour. <laughs> I love a little bright colored graphic a in the rooster. morning. A rooster. Do we wake up before roosters crow? Couldn't answer that question. <laughs> Don't know. We're beating yeah. the roosters to the punch. Yes, indeed, indeed. <laughs> All right, well, here is a tweet from Maya. Uh, right now, Camp Vlognaw should be trending because Tyler the Creator is an amazing artist who works really hard on this event each year. But no, it's trending because you privileged bitches <laughs> boo Drake off stage. I'm data so embarrassed for Tyler. Y'all are awful. Here's a tweet from M. YG just pulled Stormy Daniels on stage for Fuck Donald Trump. I am going insane. Oh my god. Big music festival news over Drama. this Drama. Drama. And the video, I just watched the video of Drake getting booed before this and I it's know. so heartbreaking. It is a little bit sad. He's also like incredibly gracious. He's like, you know, I can stay if you want or whatever. And they're like, no, get the hell off the stage. He's like, okay, and who I guess I will. Like, Drake is beloved. I thought Drake was beloved. I love Drake. You know, I'm not, I haven't been to a Drake show, but if Drake pops off on stage, I'm gonna sit and listen because he gives me some, some jams. Well, that seemed to be one of the big takes mm -hmm. on Twitter was that like, why would you boo Drake off the stage, but uh, apparently people thought that Frank Ocean was going to perform. Mm. So they expected that he was going to come out as a special guest on the show, and then they got Drake, and then I guess they just weren't happy about it. I will say this. I have been to a Frank Ocean show, and he is wonderful, fantastic, fabulous, all these things, but like, it's not like he's like, so light years better than Drake. Like these are two very famous artists creating their own style of music that is very like you hear both of their songs, you're like, oh, that's that person. Like this isn't like trash competing it's trash. Amazing people. So like, oh, Frank very Ocean didn't show music. up. Like, right. Drake, yeah. get over it. But you know, it reminds me of times that like I've been at concerts, a Frank Ocean concert, and a surprise was told to me, and I was really disappointed. And when Frank Ocean sis, you had a concert in LA two years ago, and Brad Pitt was the surprise. And he sat on the edge of the stage and you serenaded him and None of us understood what was going on. So, you know, all full circle for me right there. That one is weird to me because Brad Pitt is not a musical artist. And so just coming up on stage during a concert is very out of context. Yes. Like, you're like, sorry to this man. Who are you? Oh, you're Brad Pitt. Okay, I see. And he so was literally just sitting on the edge. And we were like, who is this white man sitting who looks vaguely dirty? <laughs> Why is Frank Ocean walking towards him? What is going on? And then and then you're like, this Brad is a special Pitt. guest. You know, this reminded me, I recently went to see Casey Musgraves at mm -hmm. uh, Radio City. And she did two nights of shows. The first night, she brought out uh, Gloria Gaynor. So I'd seen all of these videos of them performing together. Mm -hmm. um, and then expecting maybe the second night we would get a special performer too. Um, she did a cover of uh, I Want to Dance with Somebody, which that's a whole other conversation yeah. about who should or should not cover that song. Yeah. Um, but it, it's like hard sometimes when these artists set expectations that you think you're going to get somebody mm -hmm. like wildly famous. And then yeah. you're like, huh. You're like, I didn't want huh. this. And yeah. that's why you should go into everything with low expectations, y'all. Is say, that the moral of this story? Just, like, go into it like a Lauryn Hill concert that you're just surprised well, you actually got to the stage. And then you're like, okay, it's only up from here. I mean, I, 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 I do agree with mm -hmm. that. Um, I also recently went to the Madonna concert and went in with very low expectations and had a wonderful time and thought it was a great show. Well, I'm so, so glad that you had a wonderful time because she's getting sued, I'm reading, because she starts her shows late and that's for another day, I think, Twitter to talk about. Although I will say that she tells people she's starting the show late. <laughs> So Alex is a Madonna stan. It's hard to say. I mean, I'm a, a, a lukewarm Madonna stan. I will say, like, she actually set the correct expectations for that one. So she so. she should not be sued. I don't know. I, I you know, I don't know. <laughs> You're like, I'm not I, commenting on a I'm litigation not commenting matter. on a, yes. This is not mine. Current litigation. <laughs> well, let's take it to the timeline. Have you ever left a concert because it was bad? Tweet us using the hashtag AM to DM. I left a concert because it got rained out, but I don't think because I was like, this is garbage. I have left because it was garbage. You have. And it's, and I say this with love. It was with Blood Orange. Love, still Ugh. love him and that band so much, but he was headlining a show in the Hollywood Bowl in Los Angeles and he just was not carrying the show and I had to walk away. I could not watch the car wreck. So That's just really bad, especially if you spend a lot of money on tickets because then yeah. you're like, I just want to stay because I want my money's worth, but also I don't want to put up with this bad show. Yeah, well, you know, I wanted to protect my love of him so I would buy his next album. Good thing. So, all right, well, here's a tweet from NPR. Bolivian President Evo Morales has resigned amid widespread prote protests across the country alleging fraud in the presidential election that he declared himself the winner of just three weeks ago. Here's a tweet from the New York Times. 
A power vacuum following the resignation of President Evo Morales on Sunday left the streets in chaos in La Paz, Bolivia, with the police refusing to engage for hours as people set fires, looted stores, and got into violent scuffles. Joining us to discuss is Intercept reporter Victor Pugi. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Well, yesterday it was revealed that there were irregularities in the election results from a few weeks ago. What inspired this investigation into them that has led us to today? Yeah, so uh, this whole election process was uh, very convoluted and very complicated. Uh, Evan Morales has been president for several terms since uh, 2005, and he has been leading a relatively uh, popular and prosperous uh, government, uh, breaking with uh, much of Bolivia's recent history, as he has been uh, empowering the indigenous communities, which have historically been marginalized. So uh, when we got to this uh, election season, uh, he wanted to run again, but uh, he was facing term limits. So uh, he tried to uh, put forward a referendum to see if he could uh, get rid of these term limits and very narrowly lost. But uh, he was allowed to run by the courts regardless, which uh, already put uh, this electoral process in a weird footing to start with. Uh, and uh, the recent developments show that um, as the counting was uh, beginning with uh, very different reactions from the different uh, parties, uh, opposition strongholds, particularly in urban centers, began uh, to protest against him. And it culminated yesterday with uh, the military uh, asking him to resign uh, in what uh, most people would consider to be a coup by the military. Uh, even if uh, it has followed a complicated process. And this is where we are today. Uh, it's a power vacuum. It's so unclear who's going to uh, be the next leader in Bolivia. And the situation is very unstable right now. Mm. So you mentioned that the uh, the army uh, pushed him to resign. Um, what, what exactly happened there? Uh, you mentioned the word coup. Yeah, so uh, he, there are... It's a little complicated because Bolivia has very uh, odd geography. It's a very complicated terrain. So vote counting is very, very slow. So uh, what they've been doing for the last uh, past uh, election seasons, uh, according to international best practices and following the guidance of the old uh, Organization of American States, is that they would uh, release a preliminary counting very quickly. And then um, after... Uh, the long the long time it takes to do the actual counting, they would release the official results, but they would release these preliminary countings before, just so that there wouldn't be a blackout right after the elections and people could follow along what was going on. And uh, the trouble started with uh, this preliminary counting uh, indicating that he might not get the, the enough votes to uh, qualify for winning without a runoff, which uh, the opposition... Uh, cried foul and said uh, it was the result of electoral fraud. But uh, after this very fought process with uh, accusations of fraud from both sides and uh, accusations by Evo's defender that the opposition was not accepting that he won fair and square and the opposition accusing him of defrauding the votes to continue in power, he accepted, uh, as mediated by the OAS, the Organization of American States, a new election, but uh, by the time this had happened, uh, in the opposition strongholds, particularly the richer, more urban centers, uh, there were strong protests against him, and we saw that uh, police forces uh, turned against him. So uh, the police joined protests and sided with the opposition. And after that, it was a question of time till the military uh, also joined the protests and uh, went on TV and uh, requested him to resign. We uh, also have uh, reports of uh, people from Morales' party being arrested and facing harassment on the street. So uh, it's a very complicated situation, but uh, it's honestly not looking good for Latin America. These are scenes that we hope we wouldn't have to see again of uh, military tanks on the streets, but uh, it seems like Latin America has not been able to turn this page completely. Mm. Well, you've mentioned that there is a power vacuum currently in Bolivia with no president or vice president. So what's next for the country as they deal with this new development? Uh, yeah, uh, 
it's very, very hard to know what was going to happen. Uh, because in the beginning, uh, Evo was facing with uh, more center-right opposition, who had been uh, the main leader of these protests. But uh, as these protests have gotten sharper and sharper, what we saw is that the center-right opposition, the one that uh, was fighting the elections with Evo, has, with Evo had been sidelined. And uh, the opposition is now led by more radical figures, uh, particular, uh, particularly a businessman from uh, Santa Cruz, which is uh, one of the big cities where uh, has which has been considered an opposition stronghold. Uh, Bolivia is organized in a way that the urban centers are very uh, linked to the European colonization and the more more remote villages uh, with a bigger indigenous population are more aligned with uh, Evo. So what we saw is that uh, in these urban centers, this uh, businessman has taken the lead in the opposition movement. And him, who is not uh, the person who uh, narrowly lost the elections to Evo, uh, seems to be calling the shots now. Uh, so it's very unstable. We also see that the military, even though they are uh, uh, in the front of this protest, have also uh, seemed to be sharing power with uh, elements of the police forces, which is certainly a new factor in, in Latin America. So uh, the short answer is, uh, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, very people know, very few people know, mm -hmm. but uh, it's looking like we're going to have instability for the next uh, few days, which cannot be a good thing. Well, it is certainly helpful to get uh, more context and clarity on this. So, Victor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Happy to uh, join you. Here's a tweet from Yashar. Looks like Rudy Giuliani texted one of his passwords to a reporter, in this case to Roger Sollenberger. Who is Rudy Giuliani's friend Charles? An accidental text may have outed his identity. Here's a tweet from Roger Sollenberger himself. Looks like I made the archives and Roger joins us now to talk about this story. Good morning. Hey, good morning guys, how are you doing? Good, 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 thanks for being here. So how did Giuliani end up texting you and how'd you know it was a password? Well, I, uh... I was working on a story that actually got published in BuzzFeed. I was like chasing this story about a Russian oligarch and a journalist friend gave me Rudy's number. So I called him just sort of out of nowhere. He picked up on the second ring and almost immediately began divulging stuff he hadn't you know, reported before. There were a bunch of details that got corroborated in this, you know, from this BuzzFeed story uh, and Kurt Volker's testimony. So I had something there and he and I sort of struck up this conversation um, that lasted several days and he started texting me and I really just liked talking with him. So I kind of kept in touch. Then a few days later, uh, uh, I guess he was attending a World Series game with Alan Dershowitz. He uh, texted me this strange thing and I sent it to my wife, uh, I was like, oh, haha, ha, look at this, you know, boomer kind of just sending me something like butt out something. And she goes, oh, I think that's a password. And I looked at it again, and it was clearly a password. And again, I ran this by some IT experts and just the, the setup, it was eight characters long. There's a capital letter. The first part of the password actually was like this computer networking company. So it looked like, you know, one of those, uh, uh, you know, just a placeholder password that like your IT guy will send you. Be like, okay, you got to sign in and change this. But I had eight characters, special character, number, and letter. So it was pretty clear a password. And, you know, IT people have verified that. And I was sitting there. I didn't know what to do with it for a little while. I mean, kind of like the keys to the kingdom, right? If I have Rudy Giuliani's email password or Twitter password, that's, you know, a treasure trove. But, you know, to use it would be a computer crime, I'd go to prison. So I couldn't use it, and I sent him a text back saying, hey, Mr. Mayor, I think you might have accidentally sent me a password. And he was like, what password? And I showed him. He said, oh, that's just a butt dial. And he said, thanks, with like a smiley face emoji. And it clearly wasn't a butt dial. Um, so, yeah, I had it, but, you know, wanted to be honest with him and, and clear it up. The thing that came out of that, though, was like I had this thing and I didn't really have a story built around it. And I've been sitting on this for, I don't know, about a month now. This was early October. And I didn't, you know, know how to use it for anything. But I thought, hey, this is interesting and it might be an angle into a story later. A couple of weeks later, this NBC story drops where, like around the same time they did this to me, he accidentally butt dials a reporter and leaves this long message that sort of incriminates, sounds like it incriminates him and some other people. And I was like, 
Huh, that's really interesting. And uh, there's one phrase in there. It uh, talks about a guy named Charles and says, well, Charles would have a hard time with a fraud case because he didn't do his due diligence. And at that point, no one knew who Charles was. And I still didn't quite have a story there, but I thought that was interesting. And I got a call from his assistant like the next week, or comms director, not assistant. And she, she said that I'd been calling Rudy's office line and needed to know my name and affiliation. So I've been talking to this guy regularly for probably three weeks at that point, And he didn't remember my name. And he was just telling me all the stuff. I got a second story out of it that I published in Vice. And again, like all the stuff he was telling yeah. me was just yeah, you know, so, important. Well, I want to ask you, you, you mentioned that uh, you got a call from his comms director, which um, you actually go into in your story. Uh, her right. name is Christiane Allen, um, and she seems to be connected to these, uh, you know, larger payments uh, from a personal injury law firm. Um, so uh, who is she, uh, you know, how did she become connected uh, to, to all of this, including uh, Giuliani's associates? Yeah, it was funny because I just looked into her and she's, you know, really young. She's 20, obviously pretty precocious. She's climbed this ladder. She's a sort of a social media influencer type, like a Turning Point USA, like a young Trump publican, you know, uh, very, very savvy on the Internet. And she documented basically, you know, her entire life. And she's doing these, you know, she's a jet setter. She goes to Trump International Hotel and she tags herself there. She tags herself with celebrities whenever she can. And so there are all these breadcrumbs that are you know, strewn out. And I started putting some things together, uh, again, working with, uh, with my wife on this for, you know, we were just sort of you know, fascinated by this crowd anyway. And then I found this connection to Gucciardo because she interned at this guy's law firm. It was an anomaly, but I didn't really know what it meant. And I didn't at that time put it together with that line, Charles, because this guy's name is Charles Gucciardo. But then last week, and again, I didn't have a story. I just had this like sort of fascinating, like, isn't this weird that Rudy hired this super young woman without much experience? And she's clearly a personality. And, you know, I'm not really sure why he did that under the most like legal pressure of his life, but he did. And so I put this together. And then the New York Times uh, last week published an article saying Charles Gucciardo, of all people, was this guy who paid Rudy Giuliani like half a million dollars in this really strange transaction that involved uh, these like Tweedledee, Tweedledum guys in the story, Lev Parnas and Eager Fruman. And it's, they have this company called Fraud Guarantee. Those guys are now indicted. And so this transaction was super bizarre. And I was like, wait a minute, Charles sounds like the Charles from this voicemail that he left, the guy who uh, would have a hard time with fraud, the, you know, a guy who didn't quite do his due diligence. And Charles Gucciardo is a Long Island uh, personal injury attorney. He's pretty successful. He's, you know, medical malpractice, but, you know, due diligence and all that sounds like it's in a legal context. Uh, and I started to put this together because of her. Yeah. Then I found that, oh, there's a picture where she's at Trump International Hotel for this fundraiser with him, with Rudy with the Parnases, Aaron Parnas's son follows her on Instagram, congratulated her when she announced this stuff. So there's just this, uh, you know, the okay boomer thing is funny, but there's also like an okay millennial because you've blackmailed <laughs> this whole network, right? And I was able to put that together just because I got in this back door. And it was because Rudy didn't know who I was. Hmm. It's because I was sort of a nobody. He like hmm. even forgot my name. Hmm. So it's a kind of, you know, it's happenstance, but you know, these pieces that ended up coming together in the New York Times article made yeah. it a real story. It's like, oh, I've got something here. Mm. Well, I, I mean, I still can't get over that uh, he sent a pa potentially sent a password to you. So, Roger, thank you so much for joining us. Right, hey, thanks a lot. Sending passwords. Wow. Butt dial. This a butt, butt dial, dial when mm -hmm. you need okay. your face to open yeah. said phone. Well, yeah. all right. Well, before we go, today's Veterans Day, and here's a tweet from the New York Times. President Trump will help kick off New York City's Veterans Day parade on Monday at Madison Square Park in Manhattan. Organizers announced he is the first president to do so. Coming up, you'll see my chat with Clear Eyes Jonathan Van Ness and Anthony Porowski. Up next, it's Fire Tweets. Welcome back. It's time for Fire Tweets, and let's just get right into these. Yeah. Luke, you tweeted, I 
always put my music on shuffle, but then get annoyed when it doesn't play the songs I want. <laughs> I also find myself getting mad at Spotify when it gives you like new things you may like, and you start a radio, and you're like, trash, garbage, awful. Then you just are then selecting your own songs, so it totally makes that whole idea of you being shuffleable irrelevant. No. The problem with also having music from a long time mm -hmm. on your phone is that like one song that I bought off of some like random obsolete album from when I was in college will come on, and I'm like, that's not. That's not a good song. What? I'm judging my past self. <laughs> well, I'm yeah. I may judge you too if I know what the song is. <laughs> Jim, you tweeted, dating guys in their 20s is an unpaid internship. Ooh. As someone in their 20s still barely, I agree. <clears throat> drag yourself. Yes. Drag yourself. <laughs> Chanel, you tweeted, my phone is so dry, I actually go through my camera roll. Oh, hi. Is that a bad thing? I do that on planes all the time. You do when you don't, when you can't like have cell service. Yeah, or... when I don't have cell service, I just go through and look at pictures. But the worst thing I'll do is um, I go into old text messages um, and reread things that were said. Are you just like rehashing drama, or are you just like I miss this person? I'm a masochist. I like to emotionally hurt myself sometimes. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's take it to the timeline. What random things do you do on your phone when you have zero notifications? Tweet us using the hashtag aim to DM, especially if it's something healthy, unlike me. Yeah, I was gonna say, no, I don't do what you do, so. Watch, I bet there's some people out there that do. <laughs> Help me out. All right, butterfly Twitter, or butterfly emoji, you tweet it. My boyfriend just asked me if he could borrow one of his hoodies that I stole from him. You know what? Yes, you can. Thank you for asking properly. Borrow one of his hoodies? Yes. Why are you Dad. taking back what I stole? Um, so, have you done this to, like, have you stolen someone? I would need a boyfriend item? to steal said hoodie, but no. yeah. Oh. <laughs> I'm just keeping it going. <laughs> I, you know, my wife and I have some things that we share, like, okay. particularly hoodies, things that, you know, like, comfy mm -hmm. kinds of clothing. Um, so she definitely has to ask for things that I have taken. So there needs to be consent. Yeah. I thought when you're married, you just take things. No. You don't say anything. Well, I think it's, it's murky. Okay, yeah. it's great. Sometimes I feel possessive over certain articles of clothing, yeah. but she wouldn't wear them anyways, so it's I, not that much of a problem. So I've had issues. I had a roommate in the past, uh, a dear friend still, and when we lived together, I would just borrow his clothing a lot without asking because I was like, you can take mine. And he's like, that's not how this not works, okay. Zach. Not okay. I'm still that way. You can come to my house and be like, hey, yeah, wear that. I don't you could just take something. No, like even when I had roommates, you had to ask me. It really bugged me if they would use my shit without asking. <laughs> I learn every day more and more that Alex and I in our personal Would not be good roommates. <laughs> <laughs> We would really not. You think we get it? We get along great on the show. But yeah. I'll set, it would be a very. It's good to know your boundaries. You know, it's good to know your limits. Okay, tweet of the day. Yep. This comes from Pre K. Popeyes cashier. What would you like to order? Me? Don't act fucking dumb. The sandwich girl. It's like, come on. Why do you think I'm here? I stopped by Popeyes last night, not for the sandwich, which I have had famously on the show, um, but they used to have fried Oreos, and I really wanted a fried Oreo, and they've taken it off the menu, because I guess it didn't oh. perform as well as the chicken sandwich. Sadness. It's, it's like, I'm upset about it, but oh, it's I'm fine. Sorry. So now I gotta make my own, which I can do, so call me if you want a fried Oreo. That seems like a lot of work. It's just you get pancake mix, sip an Oreo, and I don't know. fry it. Yeah, okay. Really easy. Good to you. All right, well, coming up, you can see Alex sit down with Kurai stars Jonathan Van Ness and Anthony Porowski. More MTDM is up next. Welcome back. Here's a tweet from Free Your Mind Kid that was all over our timelines this weekend. What's the most out-of-touch advice that a boomer has ever given you? Use the hashtag boomeradvice when you answer. Here's a response from Bree. Just call. Go in and ask if they're hiring. Hashtag boomeradvice. <laughs> and another one from Molly Bentley. In 2007, quote, a house is a great investment. It will only go up in value, end quote. Ooh, and the fun note there is that was right before the Great Recession. Yes. And the housing um, The bubble crisis. burst. Yeah. And then the bubble burst. And then so, all houses great. were like, Phew. Trash. Yeah, I also, I do like the one that's like, just go in there and ask them for a job. It's like, that's actually not how this works at all. And if you graduated at the time when I graduated, yes. it was definitely not happening that way. Uh, so, yeah. Everyone, I remember in 2008 when we, I was, we were both, yeah, did you just graduated? I graduated in 09. 09? Yeah. So I was still in university and I was in a philosophy class when this was announced, when the recession hit, it was all over the news. <laughs> and we were being like, why am I in a philosophy I know, class? You're like, I know how I'll get rich. I'll take philosophy. I was like, and everyone was like, well, we are screwed right now. Yeah. Um, but ever since that moment, moment, you know, the economic realities that we've been growing up are vastly different than boomers. So all this advice of like, there's always going to be jobs, just ask, and that's how you get a job, or make sure you buy a house right out of college, assumes that we make enough money to even get the banks yeah. to agree to give us that mortgage that we could even pay. It's just not true. Things are a little different. Yeah, I think the worst boomer advice I got, which is actually not bad advice, was just live within your means. Mm -hmm. But I got it at a time when I had just taken a bunch of student loans to go to grad school. So I was like, guess what? 
already living outside of my means, you know? So it was like, <laughs> like too last, late for me, I guess, you know? That lasted two seconds. Yeah, but it was also like the idea mm -hmm. that I should go to grad school yeah. because then that would help, uh, you know, secure a, a financially stable future. Yeah. And so it, it just felt to me like it was uh, out of touch with, yes. you know, again, those financial and economic realities that we graduated into. Mm, and that also reminds me of like advice I got a lot growing up was, you know, you get a job at a good place and keep it for a while and then change careers. Don't change too much. People are like, millennials are switching their jobs so much. And the reason why is that's, that's the only way in which we make more money. You got to leave one company to go to another and then maybe come back. And that's how you do salary negotiations. So even how we like do jobs, like we had a lot of jobs mm -hmm. in our 20s and 30s where our parents or the boom, our grandparents did not mm -hmm. um, because it's a different job market out mm -hmm. there. Like you got to have a lot of jobs. That's why I have 10 right now, you know, because I'm a millennial. There you go. Yeah, because you're a millennial. <laughs> well, you know, it just also made me think of how like boomers lament millennials living mm -hmm. at home or there's this perception that millennials are lazy and yep. don't want to work hard or have a lot of complaints. Uh, and it's like, we actually, you know, we've come into this, graduated into a very bad economy mm -hmm. and also like grew up uh, at a time when just geopolitically a lot of stuff was happening mm -hmm. when we were in our teens. So I think that also fed into some of the challenges. It is. Yeah. So I think the, the point here is that boomers give us advice, but also understand context when you're giving advice. Don't just say get a job because, girl, you're assuming there is a job. Um, there you go. Or none. Yeah. Well, let's take it to the timeline. What's the worst boomer advice you've been given? Tweet us using the hashtags AM to DM and hashtag boomer advice. Mm. Later on, you will see Alex's chat with Queer Eye stars Anthony and JBN. But up next, we're talking yoga and consent. From Katie Rossman. Traded my yoga mat for a reporter's notebook and asked the questions a reverent yogi isn't supposed to ask about the culture of touch and consent in yoga. Over five months, I interviewed more than 50 people in six states. There are more questions to be asked. And here's a tweet from the New York Times. Disregarding complaints about unwanted touch, or much worse, has been the way of yoga for decades. Now, yogis are grappling with how to address consent issues in the gray zone of yoga studio, where physical intimacy, spirituality, and power dynamics meet. Here to help break this down is New York Times reporter Katie Rossman. Good morning. Good morning. So what made you want to explore touch and consent in yoga in the first place? Um, well, I am a pretty serious yogi and have been for almost 10 years. And in the last, I would say, year, a couple things happened uh, that really got me thinking. Um, the first was I was writing a story about a woman named Alex O'Dare, who's a yoga teacher in New York. And she mentioned that Patabi Joyce had this history of assaulting women in the yoga studio. And I could not believe that I didn't know this as somebody who has done a lot of Ashtanga myself, which is the type of yoga he sort of created and popularized. And I felt like at the Venn diagrams of, of yoga and information, I'm sort of at the center of it as, you know, an inter information junkie and a yoga obsessive. And I felt that if I didn't know anything about this, that it wasn't well known enough and I wanted to learn more. And then another thing that happened was I listened to the Michigan NPR podcast about the Larry Nasser victims and the way they talked about thinking that they didn't know that what he was doing to them was wrong because in many cases, their moms or other people were in the room at the same time. And that struck such a chord with me because very often when you are touched inappropriately in yoga, which I absolutely haven't uh, many times, that's kind of how you feel like, you know, you're in this room filled with people, you must be imagining it. Um, and and sort of those things together made me think that it was time for me to, like I said in that tweet, use a little bit more skepticism and try to look at what's going on in the culture of this thing that's actually very important in my life. Mm. Well, can you give us some background on Rachel Brayton and how she's bringing you know uh, awareness to this issue? Um, sure. So on Instagram, she is yoga girl or yoga underscore girl. And she has a really large following. She has a couple million followers and she owns a studio in Aruba and does a teacher training through there. And it's just become a very influential voice because of her social media following. And she has a large social media following because she's, she's really in touch with the culture and a great communicator. So in December 2017, when the whole world was talking about 
you know, Weinstein, Bill O'Reilly, you know, Roger Ailes, all as sort of the, the, this, this crack has started to get in all this sunshine, we all are saying, well, what are our personal stories? And so Rachel Braden started talking to her friends in the yoga world and saying, have you ever been touched in a way that made you feel uncomfortable? And everybody said yes. Basically, everyone she talked to had one story or another. So she put something out on her Instagram story, I believe, sort of casually just saying like, hey, anybody else have any stories to share? And she was bombarded with with DMs. And she sort of realized... wow, she was hitting on something. She now all of a sudden had all of these really harrowing accounts and felt like she needed to keep track of them and needed to be able to sort of save them. So she asked people to, then she put out an Instagram post asking people to email her their stories. And she received more than 300 stories. Many of them um, named names gave very specific accounts of what had happened to them ranging from you know being raped by yoga teachers outside of the yoga studio to being touched in ways that really felt wrong but that because of the power dynamic the the person who was touched the yoga student didn't know what to do so Rachel um had this huge list and really didn't know what to do because as we saw with the shitty media men's list, if I'm allowed to say that word, um, there's a lot of liability to um, sharing information that hasn't been vetted, verified. And she um, really felt burdened by her knowledge and worried about these mostly women and about what was going on in yoga. So she eventually got in touch with all those women, asked them if she could share their stories with the New York Times and 135 people allowed her to. And and I have that document and, and have spoke to her for um, the the piece that ran in the Times and also for the our documentary series called The Weekly, which you can watch on Hulu. Mm. So looking forward, um, are there standards that uh, yoga studios can put into place to ensure that uh, you know everyone uh, is receiving adjustments in a consensual manner? Um, are there uh, standards or practices you've already heard from uh, that are happening in yoga studios uh, to ensure uh, you know that everyone uh, feels good when when they're doing yoga? Um, yeah, there's there's really simple things to do, and it's really starting to take root. But it's still amazing how you know few studios and teachers still practice them. There's something that gets referred to as consent cards, where you can put a card on the top of your mat that either signifies that you're willing to be adjusted or there's there are some cards that have an X on one side and an O on the other, and you can sort of flip them over throughout the class, indicating if you're wanting or, you know, wanting to be adjusted or not. Um, but then, you know, sometimes, and there are many classes that at the beginning, a teacher will say, if you're not interested in being adjusted, you know, raise your leg and downward dog, signal in some way. But the truth is, you're that in some cases, that's asking for a blanket okay for for an adjustment that you, you don't know what the adjustment's going to be, how you're going to be touched, in what manner. And people like Rachel Braden say, just when you're about to just adjust someone, say, "Can I? I'm going to touch your shoulder here. Is that cool with you?" And someone says yes or no. As she says, you know, it's actually not that complicated, and it's almost silly when you say it out loud how uncomplicated it is, but. Uh, you know, somehow the yoga studio is one of the last places, at least in the culture that many of us are living in, where just by walking in the door, you're giving up your right um, to how and in what way your your body is touched. And it's just sort of weird if you think about it. And it certainly is out of keeping with the way I want yoga to be. Mm. 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 Well, Katie, thank you so much for your story and for joining us today. Thank you so much. Up next, you'll see my chat with Queer Eye stars Jonathan Jonathan Van Ness and Anthony Porofsky. 
Just Three, go. Two, Thank you. One. <laughs> Welcome back. I'm here with two of the stars of Queer Eye, Jonathan Van Ness and Anthony Porofsky. Welcome, y'all. Hi. Hi. Thank you um, for having us. We actually go by JV Anthony. Yeah. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. Okay. No big deal. It's totally cool. It's not. It's not a big it's deal. Not a big it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Joining me now is JV Anthony. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Okay. Well, I want to talk about the show, of course. So the latest season takes place in Japan. So did you do anything in particular to prepare for the cultural differences when it came to styling hair and also preparing food? Yeah, gorgeous question. Historically and culturally, I did do a fair amount of research to just kind of figure out like what like trends and what beauty ideals were like just like heading into where we are now. Just to kind of like what was like fierce Japanese hair like in the 1800s? What was it like in like 1900s? What was mm. it like? What techniques were going on? Like what are the classic ideals of beauty that like I might not have any clue about? Um, I also do feel though that just generally with the Japan episodes, I tried to go into them a lot more as a student and a mm -hmm. lot more just learning more. And so I didn't do like, you know, hours on hours on hours of research. I did some research, but I really wanted to go in more as a student and less of an expert um, so that I could just learn and observe. And if there was something I could do to help or to connect with that person, then fabulous. But I definitely wasn't going and trying to like judge or, or um, change anything. I was really more, except for trying to make sure that everyone was loving themselves. But if also that wasn't like, I, happening in the first place. I think we were also prepared very differently for it as well. Like even arriving, there's a lot of different cultural differences in sort of like how you enter a home. You mm. take your shoes off, um, which I feel like is something we should do. I do that now. I do that now. I do that now as well. Yeah, I became is, that Sex in the City person. Yeah, but like all of us had to have that talk with like everybody, everybody on production, like running in and like the grips yeah. and the sound technicians. Like we all had to sort of like learn how to be respectful within that environment and not just kind of like throw in, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. what, what worked in the US didn't, doesn't necessarily work out there. Mm. And for food, I mean, I had all these like hopes and dreams of like only making Japanese food. Um, but what I learned is like at, at the end of the day, it's like it's what the hero needs. And sometimes um, the season's out now, so I can talk about it. But um, <laughs> there was actually only, only two of the four episodes we actually made Japanese food. There was a classic Szechuan dish that we made and then um, like traditional French baking, which we tapped into because that's what the hero wanted to do. So that's what and we that made. And that omelet over amaresu. Omurisu. That was a Japanese one. So yeah. good. So good. Bomb. Was there anything else that really surprised you that you learned while you were in Japan? Yes. From a food standpoint, the efficiency, like the attention to, to, to precision and detail of, like they put so much care into everything that they do. And I've said that a lot about um, traveling to Italy, but I feel like in Japan, they really have that down. And it just had me um, be a little more like respectful of food. I know that's like a general thing to say, but it like really has me looking at food differently. I feel like I um, really kind of learned that like the feeling of like being detached from like your friends and your loved ones, yeah. just kind of that lonely, like a feeling of loneliness or a feeling of like not belonging is very universal. And whether you are American or Japanese, like no matter where you come from, like we just really want to be loved. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, you know, culturally, some societies will like, you know, be more emotive or more like effusive about their feelings. I think in America, where like at least I can speak for me, I'm my heart is on my sleeve. I tell you most mm -hmm. of everything that I'm thinking. Um, and I think in Japan, that is not exactly how things are. Like you would not not necessarily like people are not as communicative. When I approach uh, situations in Japan, uh, there were, it, there is a lot of like, oh, you are sharing a lot. Like mm -hmm. there's like you are sharing a lot, and I think that. Um, really once once we got to connect and really get to know people, a lot of the things that we were sharing like right up front are things that they were feeling and had the same fears and the same feelings of disconnection. Mm -hmm. um, they just like socially don't go about communicating it in the same way that maybe we would. Mm. Mm. Looking back now um, on all the past seasons, do you all ever look back and think like, oh, maybe I would have done something a little different in that moment? Do you have any moments that you would have redone? I've never made any mistakes, so I wouldn't know, but yes, <laughs> so no, absolutely. <laughs> um, for <laughs> season one, episode one, it was Tom Jackson. Remember at the end of the week, it was really hot. It was like, I think 137 degrees outside. Yeah, but they couldn't tell on TV. They couldn't, no, 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 no. But like when we had um, lemonade, and instead of making sure that it was like actually drinkable lemonade, I didn't have a culinary assistant at the time. So what they ended up putting in the lemonade pitcher that I was then like sharing with you and with Bobby. It was just like lemon it, concentrate. It was pure lemon concentrate, no oh. sugar, no water, and just ice cubes. And I think there were even plastic ice cubes in there. So it was also warm. It was really warm. Huh. And we were trying to like control <laughs> our faces while we're sweating and just like trying not it was to really <laughs> And it's like you really need to be like diligent and kind of like check everything because you never know when you're going to be drinking something. My yeah. biggest one is Ted Terry. 
Like I would have never, like I didn't, I'll be honest, I never wanted to take that beard off. I was mm. very pro beard. Mm -hmm. I was very pro resistance beard. I definitely got my little arm twisted on that. Well, I do want to talk about some of your other work before we go. Mm. Um, Jonathan, of course, you have a new deeply personal memoir that is out in the world. So how does it feel just to have it out there? Definitely a weight off my shoulders. Mm. Um, also was kind of a big wake up call as far as like the amount of work that is still left to go mm. and um, the amount of education that still needs to be shared and just kind of like the real constant um, stigma and discrimination that HIV positive people face is like really pervasive and it's really worldwide and people are really struggling with it. I think that, you know, the book was a amazing opportunity for me to be able to be honest and open about, you know, my path, but it really is kind of just, it's like, it was like, you know, closing that book, so to speak, like opened up like a gigantic new one I, that I'm, yeah. you know, now jumping into. So, um, yeah, but I'm, I'm happy that it went the way that it did, but I am really ready to just continue uh, the good fight. Yeah, I mean, are there any reactions that really struck a chord with you or that you were surprised? Um, surprised I think there's been a lot of, there's been so many people that have like shared their status with me mm -hmm. and have, you know, um, have just shared with me like their struggles or their their ways of coping um, with living with their HIV and just and finding strength in my ability to be open about my status. M my biggest surprise though is is the lack of of knowledge that people still have mm. though. Yeah. The amount of times that I've been told like I'm so sorry for your diagnosis, just really not having an understanding of like where we are in 2019 on HIV treatment. It's like I don't need anyone to apologize for my status. What mm. I need is for people in power and politicians to make. Uh, a social safety net for people living with HIV much more readily accessible mm -hmm. so that we can stop the spread of the virus. Um, so I just think that there is just still so much understanding and fear around HIV that mm -hmm. um, I think I, I think I knew that, but having, I've had certain people that are really knowledgeable, powerful people like feel that they need to like apologize for my status. And um, I think that has been really eye-opening. Mm. Anthony, hearing this, do you feel proud of him? How does it make you feel? immensely proud I think it's you know we're in this incredible position where like I think what we've learned from Queer Eye and it's tying it back to what you were talking about in Japan where like when you open up and you're vulnerable with somebody it allows them to be vulnerable in return it's a conversation and that's what Jonathan is doing mm -hmm. outside of the show and I think that that's incredible mm -hmm. and you also have a book out recently yeah yeah how's it been going Cookbook. it's been great um got to got to tour the country and it was in the UK and then ended up in Canada and it was it was in I still try to like live in this ignorance of thinking that we're like this little niche 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 whichever show, whichever <laughs> show where like people don't really know about it but you get to travel and like meet people whose lives you know we've affected with with the work that we're doing and this like awesome team that we're on and just like meet those people face to face that's really my favorite part well listen y'all this was really fun thank you so much for joining thank me you thank you for so having much. me yes. thank thank you. it was so thank delightful queer eye we're in japan is on netflix now Here's a treat from Rachie Doodle. The excitement I have for High School Musical, the musical, the series, is immeasurable. I honestly can't wait for it. And let's welcome the stars of High School Musical, the musical, the series, Julia Lester, Matt Cornett, and Joshua Bassett. Hello, y'all. Hi. Hey. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. It's so nice to meet the next stars of everyone's favorite high school show. <laughs> <laughs> well, did you all watch the original? You know, that came out when I was younger. So what about you guys? Yeah. yeah, all of us. Yeah, we're all <laughs> huge think, fans. I think we all kind of had our own like personal story related to the movies. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I think everyone in the cast were major fans. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. And as you entered these roles, did any of the original cast reach out and give you some tips or pointers? We, we were able to meet uh, Corbin Blue, Monique Coleman, um, Kenny Ortega, the writer and, or not the writer, the director and choreographer of the original three. Mm -hmm. uh, that was a huge honor just for them to give their endorsement. They got to see the first couple episodes. Um, so that was really neat that they, that they were um, kind of helped pass the torch. And what type of tips did they give y'all? Was there anything that stands out to you? Uh, um. I don't know. I, I I don't know if I would say tips, but they they're just very excited that that not only are we uh, keeping the story that like you know blew up and is so you know uh, relevant in people's lives and is so relevant in people's lives, but we're also creating new characters that mm -hmm. are so um, relatable and they're just they're really excited for us and um, just the, they've gave, given us their blessing and it's so yeah. wonderful. That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. So you know, High School Musical came out. I feel like for millennials and some Gen Zers, but they were really really young. Mm -hmm. But your show will definitely be for Gen Z. Who's the audience that you think is going to be really excited for? Because, you know, I remember back then it wasn't just me and my sister, but my mom kind of watched it too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. That's, that's a unique 
thing I think about our show is like the directors will show their parents and their parents mm -hmm. will be in love with it. And then they'll show their, you know, eight-year-old niece or nephew and they're in love with it too. And mm -hmm. I think that's one of the unique things about this show um, and just the High School Musical franchise is that it, it, it can be for anybody, any age and any demographic. Yeah, like there really is something for everybody in the show. Like every character I think is something somebody that someone in the world will relate to. Mm -hmm. And it, it, no matter what age you are, if you're four years old and barely like comprehensive to like <laughs> 90 years old, I think you're definitely going to be able to have your, your moments where you'll relate to it. Interesting. So how will this show, do you think, handle diversity and inclusion? Because, you know, those are two hot-button topics these days. For sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, just the fact that um, you know, they're advertising our show as, as an ensemble cast. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, there's there's truly not, you know, the leads or the sidekicks. Everybody has their moment. And I think that's that's so important, um, especially with, you know, everybody looking so different and, and it's so in inclusive. And we have a lot of openly LGBTQ plus characters. Amazing. And um, yeah, it's just, it's very 2019 and current. And yeah, it's, yeah. One piggyback off of that is one of the cool things that I love about the show is, for example, Nini has two moms. Mm. Um, there's, again, a few openly gay characters in the show, but it's not this ordeal. It's yeah. not this huge. It's just normal because that's right. how it is. Right. It's normal life. Yeah. Mm. And they yeah. just go about it. And, you know, and I think that's a pretty cool thing. And do you think that relates to your experience as a young person when you were going through high school or middle school? Does it feel like that's hitting that tone? I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I personally, I never grew up knowing anybody op openly LGBTQ+, mm -hmm. that was on the Disney Channel. Yeah. And so um, the fact that we mm -hmm. have characters who, uh, you know, some characters are LGBTQ+, on the show, and then some who are openly um, in, in their personal lives is really wonderful for people mm -hmm. to look up to because we really didn't have that growing up. So it's really nice that we kind of get to be the voice of the new generation mm -hmm. and bring these topics to life. And, That's amazing. Yeah. And Julie, you're incredibly passionate about the show. Absolutely. And why? And I feel like there's a good story behind that. What it, why is this series so important to oh, you? Oh, man. I mean, I am a diehard theater kid. Okay. Like, from <laughs> birth. My parents are in the business. My mm -hmm. sisters. I I've, grew up listening to Broadway tunes, you mm -hmm. know, and High School Musical was made such a huge splash in my life because for the first time, my sisters and I experienced seeing kids like us on screen mm -hmm. it, performing in musicals, which we had never experienced before. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a huge part of my life. And the fact that we are playing real theater kids in this day and age is basically my life at home. So mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it's it's a huge part of my life. I'm so passionate about this project, as, as are everybody else. Yes, but, but I yeah. think there's a difference between you and, uh, let's say, Matt. You grew up in theater, <laughs> yes, dancing, right. singing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Matt, not a dancer. How did you prepare to get these moves down? <laughs> well, let's just say that dancing has not been my strong suit. Um, <laughs> I've loved it. I've had a blast learning, and literally everyone in our cast is so insanely talented. Um, that, you know, they, they're kind of also coaches. Mm -hmm. Like, Julia was the, what, captain of the dance team, right? In high like, school. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Captain so, like, I, even today, like, we had a performance, and I was like, Julia, can we go run the moves really quick? <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, in the show, funny story, the very first day of filming, um, there was a little bit of choreography that we had to do for the auditions in the mm -hmm. show, for us auditioning for the, the musical. And um, our choreographer, Zach Woodley, gave me this like four step move. And it was just like a step, step, turn, step. Super easy and I could not do it. He like pulled me to the hall to like try to teach it to me and I could not do it. So then they changed it to just like step, step, point. Well, okay. Hit that. It literally hey. just changed step, step, point. And then after seeing the episode now, that's not even it. So they cut the wow, erasure, Matt. So oh my that. gosh. Gotta work Ooh. on that pointing. Gotta work on that pointing. Yeah. Maybe you yeah. can get some tips from Joshua here, who's oh. been in the business for a while. I don't know how your dancing is, but you've been acting for quite a bit, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, what are some celebrities you've loved working with in the past? Oh, um, I think I know what you're hinting at here. Oh, yeah. So I was, when I was eight, uh, I did like background work. I did a little bit of musical theater, but mm -hmm. um, I was doing a background job, uh, and Jennifer Lopez was in the movie. Mm hmm. And uh, there is, I don't remember the name of her co-star, but uh, I was talking to both of them, but mainly her co-star was super welcoming and warm and stuff. And we had a great time and she was obviously wonderful. Um, and then at the end we were walking away and my mom was like, oh, go, go say bye. Like go, you know, whatever. So, and I'm eight and I don't know who anyone is. And I run up to them and Jennifer Lopez opens her arm for a big hug and I go, nope. And I go over to the guy, I give him a hug and I say, bye. And I walk away and my mom was like, what did you Why did just you not want to hug J-Lo? I don't know. I 
I have no idea. And my hopes is that I will meet her one day and I can get that hug. I'm, I'm hoping for it. Would you die if she's like, I know who you are? <laughs> You're the only person that never gave that you was the, I'm the first person ever who rejected a hug. Wow. You, you open your arms and she's like, nope. nope. Oh my God. Here's a lesson, children. Always embrace Jennifer Lopez when Always. she has you. You will no miss that chance, what. baby. Yes. <laughs> well, thank all of you so much for being here today. It's been lovely getting to know you, and I cannot wait to see you on the screen coming up soon. Thank you so much. Of course. All right. Well, make sure to watch High School Musical, the musical, the series, streaming November 12th on Disney+. Up next, we've got more Aim to DM. Great job. Welcome back. Um, can you imagine having to live with yourself for the rest of your life when you didn't hug J-Lo. He told me you that. Know? We, knew, we knew going in, I was baiting him to see if he'll share the story because shame, shame, dear. That is, I cannot believe. I know, believe. I feel bad. Like, and you're I, a child, how could you know? And I really hope you get a redo, and I hope that comes up. You know J-Lo would be so gracious about it, all because she's a queen, and I'm yeah. a big fan of hers. Yeah, but I would just, I would hate to have to live with that, yeah. so, uh, you know. Well, you will move on, <laughs> we'll move on. All right, well, in response to what's the worst boomer, boomer advice you've ever received, Mallory Scott tweeted, if you didn't eat out so much, you could buy a house. Uh, Avocado I toast. I yeah. Know. This is just, I hate this like policing of the way people spend their money. Mm -hmm. Like, literally go away, please. <laughs> okay, boomer. That's all. that people think avocado toast is just like this decadent thing. I know. This is weird. It's also like, oh, you think it's the uh, $10 avocado toast that has gotten me <laughs> into the state, not my $100,000 worth of student loans. Cute. Yeah, it's Thanks. like weird. <laughs> also, avocados are like, what, $1.50, $2? I don't know. You're really running the numbers right I'm now. I'm just like yeah, yeah. making things up. <laughs> well, Jolie added, go back to school. Me. Runs away. Like, why? Yeah. So we can have more debt? That also true. Yeah, I mean, I just think it's also that gets this like very narrow mindedness that like that is the only one way mm -hmm. for someone to find happiness and stability in their life and... You know, there are I other think, routes. Yes, exactly. I know some really dumb people that have great degrees, so that don't deserve the jobs. <laughs> Tea. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> During our conversation about yoga and consent, Heather Berman tweeted, at my studio, they hand out chips to put next to you on the floor. One side means yes, assistance is fine. The other means no thanks. That's like, great. That, that's great. This is something that surprises me that uh, more fitness studios or instructors just aren't asking this mm -hmm. question. I've taken a class where they had everyone get to child's pose where you can't see anyone and yeah. then you raise your hand if, you're, your hand. if you don't want to be touched. Yeah. So, and I was like, that's great. It's anonymous. Yeah, easy, but I love the note from the segment where she said, you know, why, just when you're about to touch someone, be like, can I touch your shoulder? It's really not that big of a deal. Just have a conversation. Crazy. I mean, it, it just really points to the fact of like how we are so socialized to not ask yes. these questions and to not expect them. So, Whew. yeah. Mm. Yeah, well, thank you to our guests, Victor Poggi, Roger Sollenberger, Katie Rossman, Joshua Bassett, Matt Cornett, Julia Lester, Jonathan Van Ness, and Anthony Porowski. Lots and lots of names there. Mm -hmm. we, we will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day. Bye.